In the heat of the moment, you're not just keeping it calm, you're keeping it cool too. With an ice cold cold brew, and not just any cold brew, but one that's slow steeped and mixed with brown sugar and molasses flavor. With a cold foam infused with brown sugar coolness and a cinnamon sugar sprinkle on top. That's keeping it calm, cool, and cold brewed. With Dunkin's new brown sugar cream cold brew, America runs on Dunkin. Price and participation may vary. Limited time offer. Terms apply. The world is always on. But you shouldn't be. Put junk sleep to bed. At Mattress Firm's Black Friday Now Sale, save up to 60% on Sealy with queen mattresses starting at $279.99. Talk to a sleep expert today and unjunk your sleep. of This Week in History with me, your host, Dan the Viking. For those of you on our Facebook page, you will have noticed the picture that was put up last week to guess the episode. This week we are covering possibly the most famous battle in medieval history and one of the greatest English victories during the Hundred Years' War, and that is the Battle of Agincourt. Now, the Battle of Agincourt was fought on Friday the 25th of October 1415 and it's a battle in history that marks what was known as the end of chivalry and that is something we shall cover later in the episode. Now obviously it's quite a famous battle, it was fought between Henry V of England and the French army itself. Now during this time uh, King Charles VI of France, he was known as the Mad King so this is a time in French history where France was really split into a few factions and the noblemen who owned different areas in France really didn't have that loyalty to the king that England had to Henry and it's mainly I mean he had certain things that happened in his life Uh, he was known for bouts of rage bouts of absolute craziness he he even had um iron rods planted into his armored suit just so uh, he because he thought he was made of glass so he thought he was going to shatter if someone touched him I mean, he was an absolute he was i don't i don't really know the the medical term for it but he was a little bit crazy and henry v of england took his opportunity with this king with the mad king and he took that opportunity to exploit France's weakness and to really put another stronghold in France that was that was English. Now it's important to remember at this time in history during the Hundred Years War the dynamic setup between the two countries. So when you look at England for example in 1066 England was conquered by William the Bastard of Normandy who then became William the Conqueror or King William of England. Now, this was 1066, the Battle of Hastings, which is another episode that I shall cover uh, at, a, at a later date. And when this happened, he bought the lands of Normandy, which is northern France, over. So when William had his stronghold in, in England, like I said, obviously parts of France then came with that territory. Now, throughout the generations from sort of the the... 1066 around to the 1300s around the start of the Hundred Years War there was a lot of marriages and alliances that were formed which split France into different factions Um, at one point in in history uh, around half of France was actually English or classed as England um, and then certain battles it was taken back and forth back and forth now one of the most famous areas that England had control over was Calais. Now Calais 
was a English stronghold and the reason Calais was so important is Calais is the closest point from England to to France so England kept Calais pretty much throughout the Hundred Years War and it sort of gave Henry V this opportunity now to go into France and to take back lands that he felt he was entitled to and these go back to claims back from William of Normandy back in 1066 so there was a lot of claims that you know medieval history is very very strange and there were a lot of people who believed they had rights to certain thrones that that realistically they didn't have rights to and this is another one of those Henry V was a Plantagenet so his royal family the royal family the Plantagenets uh, Henry was part of that bloodline now they are one of the most famous families in English history and he was the head of the house of Lancaster so when he took the throne he was the house of Lancaster now this comes into play later in in history when when Henry Tudor took the throne in uh, 1485 so obviously the Plantagenets were the main royal family before the Tudors and it's important to I mean there there are a lot of stories about the Plantagenets and I could go into many many hours of talking about them um, there is a theory in British history that the Plantagenets will one day regain the throne of Britain and when you look back through Diana Spencer, the uh, Princess of Wales, if you look back through her bloodline, she is actually related directly to the Plantagenets. So when William, Prince William, takes the throne in Britain, he will be the embodiment of the the king who has basically throughout British history, he, he is linked to the Tudors, he is linked to the Windsors obviously with his dad and he is linked to the Plantagenet so he will be essentially the most royal king we've ever had in this country so um, that will happen obviously God knows when but that that will happen and that that sort of the British history that, that does say that the Plantagenets will come back to the throne and obviously like I said William is, is the direct blood descendant through Diana to that but we are going off on a bit of a tangent here, so we'll, we'll get back to the the real reason why we're here, and that is the Battle of Agincourt. So, like I said, the, what happened is the English had set up this opportunity to go to France for many, many soldiers to travel over to France and to claim glory in the name of England and, you know, to, for Henry V. So, what happened is the the English came over to France and they spent a few months travelling up the outside or up the, the northern coast of France and basically pillaging and attacking and taking real advantage of the fact that the French really didn't have the backing of the king or the the ability to raise such an army. Well, this is what they thought anyway. So, you look at the French at this time, like I said, they were split into to many many factions and the english believed this was their the perfect opportunity to to take back what they believed was theirs so we'll go on to a little bit of the story and the battle of agincourt really did open the world up to a new type of fighting a new type of weaponry and the formidable force of the english longbow now the battle itself tells a very different story to what you may be aware of and that is the fact that by the time the battle of Agincourt actually started the French army of around 25,000 men was made up of knights now one of the most famous knights in this was a man named the Duke of Brabant now he is possibly one of the most famous French knights at the time and we will go into a little bit of detail about him at a later later in the show. Now they came up against six thousand Englishmen, so the odds were drastically against the English in this fight. So the English didn't have knights 
per se. They had they had a few knights with them, but the French army was purely knights. And that is where I was talking earlier in the show about this code of honour, this code of knights that they believed they were superior to everybody and they had this warfare code, sort of an unwritten code in medieval history, which was if you were a knight and you went into battle, you expected to return. Now, mainly, if you look at a lot of medieval battles, the death rate is not as high as you would imagine. And that is mainly because a lot of knights would have been captured rather than murdered. What they would then be done is sold back to the owners or the the noblemen of the country for a ransom or or an amount of money or, or a piece of land to get their knights back. So majority of knights during medieval times went into battle and they they came home. Knights, you know, nowadays you you can become a knight of the realm. Uh, there are many many in this country, you know, uh, Sir Elton John. I'm being from Watford, you know, Sir Elton John. You've got uh, Sir David Attenborough. So these these are actually knights now, um, you know. And, and what you you think of as knighthood now is somebody kneeling down in front of the Queen, um, and you know, being touched with a sword on either side and that that's it back in those days it was a complete code of honor it was you know you had to protect children you had to protect women uh they they had certain aspects of their life they had to be devoted to the church um i mean to become a knight it was it was sort of like a, a long process it wasn't something that happened with a, a simple touch on the shoulder with a sword um and you know that that I don't know where that's come from that touch on the shoulder, but before this, it, previously it was um, you would get a slap round the face, and that slap round the face uh, was supposed to be the last blow that a knight would ever take without returning a punch or a, a sword or whatever. So that is where this chivalry comes from, and you know the French army outnumbering the British, you know, sort of five to one almost and being made up of these superior warriors these superior knights who you know they just didn't see any way that they could lose that battle the thing the french underestimated was the the power of and the skill of the british longbow you know for almost a hundred years at this point and the longbow had been embedded into english and welsh society to the point that it was compulsory for people to practice using a longbow on a Sunday. You know, this was, it was the the skill that the English had um, during this battle, not even just the battle, but the, the skill of these archers was unbelievable. You know, the, the practice that they put in every single week, you know, to, to master their weapons. And this was something that was really underestimated by the French another main difference between the two armies was the way they were set up now the English at this point they basically worked on a draft system similar to what we'd have now um, in the sense that people joined the army or joined as a longbowman because they wanted to, to do it you know you had the men that signed up to go to France to fight for the king they wanted to be there they wanted to be part of the army and they wanted to you know to get the spoils of war and and the riches that came with that the french on the other hand worked on quite an outdated system or what the, the normal system at the time um which was the king of france called on the noblemen of the of france to raise their what's called a fjord or their army cuz each nobleman had their own section of an army or their own ability their own warriors their own fighters um not some had more than others they not all of them had you know a, a massive army some of them had maybe 200 men some 2000 men under their banner it, it was you know depending on the size of the land that you owned and you know you you had to answer the call of the king and 
etc etc whereas you know these men were dragged to fight whereas the english volunteered to fight and you know whether that played a difference in the battle i i don't necessarily know but the, like i said the you could see how the medieval way of fighting was starting to change you know with the introduction of these long range weapons and with the introduction of men wanting to fight rather than being forced to fight and how much difference that could make on a battlefield and with france being sort of caught up in this civil war it was henry's chance to to take take the plunge and and he did so and on the 14th of august 1415 he made his move to attack france and to try and take advantage of the fact that you had these powerful houses fighting against each other and a king who was thought he was a pane of glass who was not able to to lead his army so it really did look like france was was ready to fall so when henry crossed the channel the the first point that he made was a port town in france northern france called harfleur now this was the first place they attacked and they expected a very quick victory however the garrison at france or at her floor half floor sorry it it held up the english off for about five weeks now that might not seem too bad but when you're talking about a medieval army of thousands of men that need feeding and need supplies to to carry on you know five weeks was a very long time for them to have to to get dwindling supplies and and to you know hold off not only that the the constant fighting meant that you know henry had lost a few hundred men over this five week period before they they actually managed to take the port so they did take the port in the end but obviously now henry's dealing with the fact that he's only just landed in france sort of five weeks ago he's only fought one battle and he's lost men already so you know they're in a situation where the sort of their backs are against the wall just before they've even really entered into mainland france now the english faced a real problem which was this attack on harfleur had caused shockwaves around france and although the king was incapacitated and unable to raise an army the french noblemen seemed to rally together and sort of you know realize that this foreign enemy that had been their enemy for nearly a hundred years at this point had you know had entered into their lands and taken one of their towns and they this national pride sort of entered into the french army which is something that henry didn't really expect and and they rallied you know the the french rallied together for this not only did the knights you know want to fight the there was a sign up of around sort of 6000 just in paris alone there was a sign up of 6000 peasants who'd signed up to fight the english you know this they really didn't want the english or this foreign king in their lands you know the france had this this opportunity to to really stamp out the english and with henry king you know the king of england being on their lands if they'd have managed to wipe out king henry it would have would have sent shockwaves across England. So, really, I mean, this ability that France could have had, they they didn't take advantage of, and they actually refused the peasant service. You know, they wouldn't allow peasants to fight for them because, as far as they were concerned, they outnumbered the English at this point, sort of three to one on the battlefield. Um, they were sort of thinking, well, you know, we don't need them. You know, we're, our knights are superior we don't need these peasants coming and fighting for us and and taking the glory you know that one of the main things about being a knight at this this time was the glory of winning at war and and they didn't want to to take that they didn't want to share that with with the common folk they they wanted that that all to themselves so this is where we focus a little bit on the duke of brabant now he had only been knighted about a year before this so he had never actually faced any battles he'd done all of the the tests and all of the the chivalric procedure to become a knight 
but yet he'd never actually been in battle. So this was his a chance to prove that he's worthy of of the knighthood. You know, it, it, the you can't be a knight and not have been in a battle. That was the you know, although you'd done all the stuff once he'd had that first blooding, that first taste of battle and won he then becomes a more decorated knight and and he's a you know he's able to show off a little bit more the problem with the duke of brabant is his older brother was the duke of burgundy now burgundy in france actually owned one third of all of france he was a very very powerful man and he was using his power or planning to use his power to take the throne from the king of france and you know and use this opportunity to place himself on the throne and to usurp the crown now he actually wrote a letter to the duke of brabant telling him that he was not to go to war or to engage with the british and to join the french army so the duke of brabant is now caught in this you know the battle in i suppose inside his head really as to does he go and fight for his country and kick out this foreign invader and obviously earn his stripes as as a knight or does he listen to his brother and you know not do that and and follow his family code you know the other reason for that is his brother was very very powerful and in this time betraying your family was it was common you know just because his brother you know because he was his brother doesn't mean that he would look at the duke of brabant any favorably you know if he disobeys this direct order to not go into battle there's a potential that he ends up you know getting attacked by his brother and and his brother if his brother ever did take the crown of france he would murder his own brother because he dis he disobeyed a direct order not to do so so he's caught with this very big dilemma as to what to do himself so this is where things start to change for the english henry has received information that the french are building this great army to attack him and he decides that he he's not going to go down without a fight and he needs to leave the port of harfleur and travel to calais like I said, Calais at this time was an English port. It had English soldiers in, and it was a garrison, and it was slightly easier to defend. So they he takes the army out of Harfleur and marches them towards Calais. Now, the whole time the English army are doing this, they are being followed by the French army. The French army is well aware of what's going on, and they are well aware of the fact that the English are slowly losing men on the journey during this period they were running out of food running out of water disease and famine and you know the 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 walk or the march from Harfleur to Calais was it was a long march and you know the French were biding their time instead of attacking the British on the road they would wait wait for them a lot of them to die of of malnourishment a lot of them to die of sickness and disease and they waited to an opportune moment where they overtook the english and met them on an open field in agincourt now the english were in a position where they came over the brow of a hill and they saw a 25000 man strong army at the bottom of the hill or on on this open field now that was their direct route into calais they now the only thing that was stopping the english getting to safety was this massive french army at this point the english army had dwindled down to around 6000 men so very similar to things you may have watched on tv if you're a game of thrones fan you'll have known this they camped out both armies knew that a battle was going to happen so they had a, a camp out the day before now the night before the battle the english knew they were outnumbered five or six to one they really the mood in the camp was not good you know they really didn't believe that they had a chance um a lot of them feared either being killed or captured 
and you know one thing that the French used to say was that if the English ever got caught if they ever captured an English longbowman that they would cut off the two fingers that that they have to mean they would not be able to use their longbow so you know that there was that fear between the camps or in the English camp at least the French camp very different very jolly jovial music very happy they knew that this battle really they couldn't lose you know they're outnumbering the English the English have 6,000 men most of them archers maybe 2,000 foot soldiers 4,000 archers and the French 25,000 roughly two and a half thousand cavalry around 1500 crossbowmen and the rest were made up of mainly knights and, and foot knights or knights on foot so the mood was a lot better you know they they really did believe that they could win this so the next morning comes when you love riding a motorcycle you want to ride it everywhere even getting a dental checkup Mr. Carter, wouldn't you prefer the chair? I'm fine on my bike, Doc. Well, let me know if you feel any discomfort. And when you love saving money, you want to save even more. That's why GEICO makes it easy to bundle your motorcycle and car insurance. All done, Mr. Carter. Remember to brush, floss, and lubricate your drive chain regularly. Kickstart your savings with GEICO Motorcycle. Bundle and save on the things you love. And the battle is about to begin. And this is where... You know, to put it into a little bit of perspective, when you look at uh, this this battlefield in particular, it's an open field, sort of funneled by two forests on either side. Now the English line up on one side, and it narrows as as the trees come together. So the English line up, and they put stakes into the ground on one side of the field. Um, and they put a few archers in the woods either side and the main bulk of the army in one single line the French put their cavalry at the front followed by their soldiers followed by their archers at the back and there's a standoff no one wants to make the first move nobody you know the French are waiting for the English because you know again it's that chivalric code of you don't throw the first punch you know you you don't start the battle but you make damn sure you finish it and what they did they waited and they waited and the english thought you know we're not going to get through this so we're going to move closer so what they did they pulled out their stakes out of the out of the ground and they moved closer to the french and they put the stakes back in the ground and created their little defense behind the stakes were the archers and in the middle it was funneled into where the foot soldiers were in the middle of the battle now the French were just within longbow range and it's said that what happened was the English actually stood there and they put their two fingers up the V salute and said we've still got our fingers basically and that's where the history of that swearing that the you know putting your two fingers up at someone that actually comes from Agincourt it comes from that battle where the English turned around and went you know sticking your fingers up we've still got our fingers and that's what it means you know it doesn't mean f off so it obviously it does now um but that's that's where it's come from so you add to that the English are now taunting the French the French don't really want to engage but the taunts, you know, the English are, they're really going for them. You know, they're giving it, giving them everything they've got. And all of a sudden there's a cavalry charge. Now the French had lost many battles in the past against the English by cavalry charges. Because they didn't understand how dangerous the longbow was. Now what happens at this point is the cavalry charges... The English start firing and they start to really, really take down the cavalry. Now, they also don't notice the stakes in the ground and then a lot of the horses are impaled on these stakes. The rest of the horses behind don't really know what's going on. There's a panic that emerges 
between the you know the the French the the ground is very muddy very boggy a lot of the horses are getting stuck they get to these stakes and they can't go any further and it's very very easy picking for the English archers to just pick off one by one the horses and the men now the panic ensues and the cavalry retreats as the cavalry retreats the French really really panic and they the the horses run into the French lines and they you know a lot of men are then killed on the French lines because the horses are out of control you then realize that this cavalry charge hasn't worked they're not they've not killed the English they've not done what they need to do and the French are a little bit embarrassed by this so what they then do is they charge their knights now the ground is already torn up by the horses the ground is already muddy and boggy and a lot of men are dead on the field already as the knights approach the English they really really want this victory they they really feel that they've got this victory in the bag and again the English are just picking them off one by one and the problem you have here is they didn't manage to penetrate the English lines and they didn't manage to do it quick enough so what's happening now is as these knights are progressing forwards they're getting killed by the English longbows and they're also getting trampled by their own men now a knight's armour is extremely heavy you're talking the full medieval armour face guard helmet shoulders the whole works even down to the you know the metal boots everything was designed to protect them however the english longbow was designed to penetrate that armor so the men at the back were pushing forwards the men at the front were being pelted with arrows a lot of them were losing their footing a lot of them couldn't see you know these visors that are in in these knights helmets were designed so an arrow couldn't pass through them well you think an arrow is only maybe an inch big so these slits in their eyes were maybe half an inch so when you're talking about a knight they really couldn't see they couldn't know what they didn't know where they were going they didn't know how fast they were going and if you fell down you weren't getting back up there was you know 15 20 thousand men behind you forcing their way through these lines now the English were just, you know, this was a field day for them. They're just picking off one by one these knights with their arrows. And they actually managed to capture around 2,000 men. Now, this is where it gets interesting. So around 2,000 knights they've captured at this point. And this is where the English, the French retreat, 2,000 have been captured and are now held by the English and this is where the Duke of Brabant has made this decision himself and his army to attend the battle now he's turned up late at this point very very late he's turned up that late he doesn't have a chance to get his own armor on now this is what happens with the Duke of Brabant is he actually picks up armor from another soldier who's who's on the floor and he puts on the wrong colors the wrong you know he put, just puts on whoever's he can find and he charges into battle he charges into battle because he wants this victory and the English see this rally that the French have and they think right now we're in a bit of a problem now we've got maybe 10,000 men in front of us and 2,000 men behind us if these 2,000 men behind us decide to retaliate or to pick up their swords and fight we're going to lose we're going to crush although technically they shouldn't have done that because once you've been captured that is the the, the, the chivalric code would be to not fight however if you can see that your army is going to win it's very hard i think not to actually pick up your sword and fight and this is where henry king henry makes that decision to end chivalry and he ends chivalry in the medieval time and that is when he decides to put all of their prisoners into a barn and to set fire to the barn and kill all of them 
So he does this. This is not what the French would consider warfare. This is brutal and, you know, although looking back on it now, you can understand why at the time this really rallied the French again to to the cause of, of we are going to destroy you now. And again, they went through the same motions, the same mistakes as they did before. They charged the English line and they really, again, they really, really failed. You know, the English again had the opportunity to just pick them off one by one. Um, you know, their crossbows were useless until they got into close range. The soldiers were useless. The cavalry had disappeared and they were in a situation now where they really weren't going to win this battle. Um, you know, although they had the numbers, they had the men, they didn't have the know-how to actually attack and to actually win this battle. Now, towards the end of the battle, uh, a lot more men are captured, a lot more men are taken prisoner, and Henry then creates this order to kill anybody who is not a nobleman. So the nobles, the ones that he could ransom and sell off for a high price, were allowed to live and any normal knight or you know any any normal soldier was was murdered and the duke of brabant was actually captured at this point and this is why it's so important this is why i've mentioned him he was captured by the english and because he was wearing not his own colors he was wearing somebody else's and that's how they identified them on a battlefield nobody knew who he was and he was murdered on the battle he was killed and this is why he's he's a he's in a very very interesting story you know a man who's in this conflict between do i do the right thing or do i do what my family wants me to do he turns up he's that eager to prove himself he puts on the wrong colors and that's what cost him his life you know if, if he had his own colors on they probably wouldn't have killed him and he he would have been sold and ransomed off which was like I said which was the custom at this time so it's definitely a very interesting story and like I said it was possibly one of the most famous English battles in history and it, it pretty much ended the Hundred Years War you know it, the Hundred Years War ended in 1453 so I, I mean alright you're talking 30 40 years later nearly but it, this was possibly the defining moment of the bat of of warfare in in the hundred years war where things changed you know they realized that long distance weapons were important gunpowder had only just really been introduced into warfare so it wasn't necessarily such a big deal at that time but obviously you know that that was a potential well we we all know the the history of gunpowder so that again was a potential problem that that they had to face and you know the chivalric code of you know keeping your 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 prisoners and, and selling them back and that that had almost gone the the brutality of this battle that the english the english had to you know they didn't have a choice it wasn't like they they decided oh we're going to do it just just for the fun of it you know they actually had to to make that decision there and then on the battlefield to break that chivalric code and they you know that's what they did they didn't really have they had that that fear inside them that that they were going to to die if if the french had turned around and and fought back and the battle itself you know the english just about lost around 400 men out of their 6000 so you know they did they did very very well and the french they lost almost 6000 lives so again when you when you think about it you know they they lost 6000 men they had 25000 there was still more than enough to stand there and fight but the english were just that superior on that day and that much better that the french they had to retreat and they had to disappear so that was the battle and uh, that tells you obviously about how it happened and, and the ins and outs of it but it doesn't really explain the significance of it and, and for Agincourt the English 
a victory in the face of a far greater enemy. It was an enemy that, you know, likely the English didn't stand much chance of winning, but yet they did and take that victory very, very well. And obviously to the English, it, it is massive in our history. To the French, however, it's uh, it's seen as obviously quite a sore point in their history. It's seen as obviously the end of chivalry. They, they believe that the English didn't fight fairly. Um, certainly didn't you know they certainly didn't give the the French knights the respect that they would have they would have had in previous battles and it does give you a little bit of an idea into the the mindset behind this the reason behind Agincourt and the reason why it was such a success for the English so after the battle obviously Henry marched on to Calais and then back to London now he was greeted obviously with massive applause and massive celebration for this for this victory however it was seen as a good victory due to the fact that england had failed for pretty much half a century to create any sort of decent win over the french but bearing in mind this war was 116 years long i know it's called the 100 years war but it was 116 years long and there were times of peace, there were times of fighting, there were times of invasion, etc., etc. But the English never really scored a big victory up until that point. And, you know, for 50 years plus, the English were, were losing this battle. And here comes a new king. You know, he, he hadn't been, been on the throne very long. And he's come in, it's one of his first campaigns is to go over to France and score this massive victory in the face of adversity in the face of a much larger force and really sort of proved that the English could could do it now I'll give you a bit of a context into the backgrounds between you know around the hundred years war because obviously it doesn't make a huge amount of sense unless you look into it but basically like I said previously was England was taken over by William of Normandy in 1066. Now, during that time, when he took over, he actually gave a lot of the lands to the French. A lot of the aristocracy in England was pretty much null and void, and they became French. So, in England, at around this period, the French had actually been pretty much in control of England for a couple of hundred years at this point. The aristocracy prior to this spoke, um, spoke French. The peasants or the lower class spoke English. So to anybody who was English through and through, you know, they saw the French as this huge enemy. They were people who came over, took the lands, took the money out of the country and, the, you know, and changed their aristocracy. They changed England. And when obviously the English took back the throne... This is why this massive adversity towards the French existed. Now, I would be 99% sure in saying that it does kind of still exist in this country even now. Um, and that is crazy. I mean, there's a... I was once asked by an American, I believe it's on a Simpsons episode as well, and it's who do you like more, the Italian or the French? And you always say the Italians, even to the point I've actually been asked, do you prefer the French or the Germans? And you always normally come out with the Germans, you prefer the Germans to the French. And that goes back to this, you know, this bitter feud that England and France have had for for a long, long time, you know, and I think the French feel the same, you know, the French don't particularly like us. And it's it's sort of gone back and forth. Now, I think nowadays there obviously there's no no bitterness in it it's just uh just oh yeah well we don't like the french whereas i i think americans have a similar thing with the canadians or we don't particularly like the the canadians and the canadians have the same with with uh the americans i know uh, i've got a friend in canada who who calls americans the noisy neighbor downstairs so you know there is that that bit of banter there i think it's more banter now than it was was serious but you know that that animosity 
has goes back for you know nearly a thousand years now so it just goes to show how France and England have had this constant battle I mean even to the point that the French um, coat of arms at this time was a blue flag with um, the Orleans the gold Orleans on them and the English flag used to be the red flag with the, the, the lions gold lions but at this point it was a crossed flag with um, quartered into two quarters being the French blue with the Orleans and two quarters being a red with the English English lions so you know there was that that claim the British or the English at this point genuinely believed they had a claim to the throne of France the Battle of Agincourt obviously led the French to a massive defeat and it meant that the arguments that they were having prior to the battle in you know who owns what part of France and who should be in charge of the, the country and so on and so forth and um, it led to that point where it didn't you know they weren't helped and you know four years later uh, Henry came back and he actually took Normandy so the north a lot of the north of France and and put that under English rule and in reaction to this, uh, he was actually betrothed to marry uh, Prince Charles of France. Uh, sorry, Prince Charles, King Charles the Sixth of France. Henry was betrothed to marry his daughter, which made him then the next legitimate king of France or the next successor to be king of France. So he he secured himself that claim. Now I can do a completely other episode on on Henry V after Agincourt uh, if that is something people are interested in or want to know what happened after that after the battle after he was given this you know this attempt to become king of France it gives you a, a definitely a, a different look into the two countries and how they how they fought in wars but like i say in every every episode you know i do enjoy doing these this to me for an Englishman, Agincourt is massive. It's such a big part of our history, and it's a, it's a wonderful story of how you know you can win in the the face of adversity. It was definitely a David and Goliath story at the time, and you know, bearing in mind how religious the world was at this point, you know that God smiled on England, and that's how the English saw it. That that they they really shouldn't be under French. There should be no one, no French in England. They really did believe that that was God's way of telling them that they were superior and that they deserved to have their country back and 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 more. So, you know, I absolutely love medieval history. I find it so fascinating. I find it such an amazing time in 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 history, especially in English history. You know, this is a time where warfare was was brutal. I mean, absolutely hor horrific scenes. And it was man on man. It was definitely, you know, it, it was a type of warfare that we will never see again. You know, we, we're very unlikely to ever see again. And for good reasons. But I do think that, you know, it's it's definitely part of of history that, should be remembered and at the moment with what's going on in the world um, my personal opinions I feel like there are people out there at the moment that are trying to erase history and for me personally yes there are very bad things in history and I do hope you guys you know agree with me on this there are some terrible terrible things that have happened in history and there really are some massive atrocities and to completely blank those from history does not serve any purpose to anybody. The only way you can ever move forwards is by learning from your mistakes. And yes, there are people in the world who have done very, very bad things in the past. And I do believe that maybe they shouldn't be abjurated in the way that they are and sort of celebrated in the way that they are 
But you do have to remember that if it wasn't for certain people in history, the world wouldn't be the way it is now, good or bad. And, you know, people need to learn from history. They need to learn from the mistakes of people. Some some of these guys, you know, some of these people that are, are being uh, monuments that are being attacked, some of these these people are sort of five, six, seven hundred years old. Um you know yes they did bad things but we learn from that mistake and you know to me the only way you can actually learn from their mistake is to be educated on it and hopefully that's something that I I will you know be covering for you guys um, in sort of coming episodes is is the importance of of learning from our history and making sure that when mistakes are made that we don't go out there and repeat the same mistakes so that's my little message on what's what's happening in the world right now. I do hope uh, everybody has enjoyed this episode. And like I say, I really, really enjoy medieval history. So if there is any aspect of medieval history that you would like me to cover, or any history that you would like me to cover, I say it every week. Drop me a message. Let me know on Facebook. Uh, we have an email address which is twihpod at gmail.com I will be doing a request episode next week so look forward to that one look forward to the picture that's going to go up with uh, with the guests so like I say have a guest get yourselves on Facebook have a guest at this week's episode uh, for those of you that are on Patreon we will have a new Patreon episode coming out very very shortly as well hopefully uh, it will be uh, later today possibly tomorrow on the 21st 26th of june depending on when you're listening to this episode so hopefully we will have that coming out very soon for those of you that are interested that is winston churchill part two so this is winston churchill prior to world war Two, and prior to obviously what he is famous for so this is uh, a lot of things that you may not know about Sir Winston Churchill that might come as a bit of a surprise to you for those of you who do want to get a listen in on that episode get yourselves over to patreon.com look for this week in history and it will come up with my podcast I believe it's about two or three dollars a month so it's no more than a cup of coffee get yourselves on there and get listening so thank you very much for listening this week guys just remember we all have history make yours great Bye-bye. Bundling car and renter's insurance with GEICO is so easy, your neighbors are probably already doing it. But who? Look for the signs. Chances are they live in a home and have a car. They use money and enjoy having more of it. They probably drink lots of lemonade. Mmm, lemonade. And they've probably said something suspicious like, I'm bundling with GEICO or stop spying on me with those binoculars. If so, you may want to ask them how easy it was to bundle with GEICO. Bundling is easy with GEICO. Just ask your neighbors. When you love riding a motorcycle, you want to ride it everywhere, even getting a dental checkup. Mr. Carter, wouldn't you prefer the chair? I'm fine on my bike, Doc. Well, let me know if you feel any discomfort. And when you love saving money, you want to save even more. That's why GEICO makes it easy to bundle your motorcycle and car insurance. All done, Mr. Carter. Remember to brush, floss, and lubricate your drive chain regularly. Kickstart your savings with GEICO Motorcycle. Bundle and save on the things you love.